So, yes, if you'd like to keep open Psalm 73, that would be very helpful. Uh, but could we now have the, the next slide? Uh, you may have seen this card before. I love it. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson went on a camping trip. In the middle of the night, Holmes awoke and nudged his faithful friend, Watson. Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Watson replied, I see millions of stars. And what does that tell you, Watson? Well, astronomically, it tells me there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. And meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. And what does it tell you? Holmes was silent for a moment, then spoke. Watson, someone has stolen our tent. Different perspectives. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were on a camping trip, but uh, Watson had a very different perspective on the situation to Watson. And it's all a matter of how we look at it, isn't it? How we perceive the situation. As I was preparing this, I could hear my late mother's words echoing uh, in my ears. She was so often saying, well, I don't see it that way, dear. And then would proceed to tell me how she saw it and was often a much better way. Um, and a few weeks ago, I was um, just wandering through the Marlins and I happened to bump into the person who's the leader of our um, le uh, families together that meets on a Friday morning. And she'd just come out and her two little boys were very happily playing on the fire engine in Marlins, you know. And she was standing there with a really puzzled look on her face. I said, hi, what's up? You look really puzzled. Oh, she said, I'm just figuring out what to do. We had far too many children this morning. It was chaos. So I smiled and I said, no, you had uh, not enough helpers, probably, and possibly not a big enough room. But isn't that a great problem to have? Oh, she said, that's a much better way of looking at it. <laughs> but isn't it, Jack? It was easy for me. I don't have to do it. But anyway, um, but, um, isn't that so true? So often, it is all a question of our perspective, how we look at it. And I believe that that really is the main message of this Psalm 73 that we're looking at this morning. So I've entitled it, Seeing Life from God's perspective. And it would help if you have your Bibles open because um, we do look at it sort of more or less verse by verse, but I, if you've got it open in front of you, I won't need to read every verse as we go through. I don't know about you, but um, have you ever wondered who, uh, well, the title of this or the, the beginning of this in my Bible, I'm sure in all of our Bibles, says Psalm 73, a Psalm of Asaph. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about or wondered who this Asaph is. I have to confess that I've never really given it much thought until I came to look at this. 
this psalm and prepare it. And of course, we hear of Asaph earlier in the Old Testament. He's there in 1 Chronicles, and he's one of the, the special people, one of the Levites chosen by King David when David was bringing the ark, that special box where they had the Ten Commandments, into the new tent tabernacle that David had prepared for it. And the Levites, the worship leaders really, had to be there leading the worship as they brought this uh, ark into the tabernacle. And Asaph was one of these people. He was the leader, if I'm not mistaken, and he had to um, go before them And we're told that they were to make a joyful sound with musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. And you may remember David danced in front of the ark, and there were choirs and singing and shouting, and uh, the ram's horn was playing. I mean, that was some day of rejoicing before the Lord. And Asaph was there leading it. But I think in this psalm, we meet a rather different Asaph. We meet a very worried and puzzled guy, particularly at the beginning of this psalm. So what was Asaph's problem? Well, I think we have this sort of fairly clearly laid out for us in the first 12 verses of the psalm. You see, at the beginning, he says, surely... God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This isn't a question. We sometimes say, well, surely that. No, no. He says, surely. I know this for sure. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Israel, God's chosen people. Asaph knows that God is good. He knows that he is faithful to those that trust in him. But his problem seems to be that his head knows one thing, but his heart and his experience seem to say something very different. He says in verse 2, his feet had almost slipped. He'd nearly lost his foothold. He'd nearly lost his faith. Certainly he was full of doubts. So why was that? Well, he tells us in verse 3, that he envied the arrogant. Good things were happening to bad people, and Asaph was tempted to envy them. Why was that? This shouldn't happen. Asaph's God is a God who is faithful to his people, and yet those who were certainly not in any way acknowledging God were definitely prospering. And he goes through that in the Verses that were read to us, verses 4 to 1, the next verses, verses 4 to 12. We see in verse 4 that they've no physical problems, they've no aches and pains, they've no long waits for the NHS. Uh, Their appointments are, well, they don't need appointments, they're strong and healthy, it tells us in verse 4. And then in verse 5, they don't seem to have any burdens or anxieties, no cost of living crisis for them. They're not plagued by human ills, it tells us. And they're proud. They're even violent. And they have unbelievable imaginations, verse 7 tells us. And they mock believers. They scoff. They even oppress them, in verse 8. And it all sounds so plausible that they lead others astray. 
which I think is what verses 9 and 10 are really saying. People listen to them. They're so impressed by them. They turn to them. They drink up waters in abundance. They drink it all in, we would say. And they even blaspheme God. They're mocking God in verse 11. And then verse 12 is a sort of summary, isn't it? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. And Asaph is understandably puzzled. He's even envious. Surely this sort of prosperity, this blessing, should be the reward of God's people, of those that are following God, obeying God. And yet it's these arrogant blasphemers. And I think we can identify, can't we, a little bit with Asaph here? I mean, doesn't that world sound a little bit, or in fact very much, like our world today? And don't we sometimes feel a bit, oh dear, why is it that things are not as they're supposed to be? When we look at it from our worldly perspective, it actually doesn't make much sense, does it? We have a God who is a God who is in full control, a God who is in heaven, a God who reigns, a God who rules. And yet, when we look at, at our world, we might be tempted to wonder, even to doubt. We can't understand it, but we just feel that somehow it shouldn't be like this. And so faced with this situation, what was Asaph tempted to do? Well, as we can see, what was Asaph's temptation? In the next slide. Asaph's temptation is laid out for us again in verses 13 to 16. And here we see a man who's very troubled, very confused, wonders whether his trust in God, his obedience to God's commands, has all been worth it. Verses 13 and 14. And yet, he's not a man who's lost his faith. He's not completely wandered away, but he's sorely troubled and doubted, doubts. He has an inability to just understand what God is doing. Michael Wilcox, in his commentary on this psalm, quoting also a guy, Clement, says, It's not that his faith is slipping into unbelief. Doubt is something only a believer can experience. For you can only doubt what you believe. Doubt to unbelief is what temptation is to sin, a test, but not a surrender. I find that very encouraging. I'm someone who often is prone to doubts, but it's not a sin, but a temptation. And while Asaph may have not completely lost his faith, certainly his confidence is slipping. His assurance is gone. And he's lost that joy in the Lord. He's lost his peace of mind. His temptation is to doubt. He can't understand. And when he tries to figure it out, he says, well, he just gets himself into more and more muddles. Verse, 19, verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. The more he tried to work it out, the more he was troubled. I think there are 
probably many of us who many times have uh, felt like this. Tempted perhaps to doubt God's goodness, to wonder, even if it's all worth it. And maybe like Asaph, we don't usually share our doubts. And maybe because like Asaph, in verse 15, he says, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. In other words, he's not been saying this in the, in the tabernacle, in the sanctuary where they've worshipped. He didn't want others to stumble or be confused. He knew in his heart that his thoughts were not right, but um, he didn't say anything. Maybe sometimes we're a little bit afraid to share our doubts, our questions, our temptations, and maybe often it's not appropriate, but I think clearly sometimes there is a place to do it. I am so grateful that Asaph did this by writing this psalm. We'd never have known if he hadn't shared it with us and written Psalm 73. And I'm very grateful for that. Not only can we this morning share that, but Christians all over the world can read this and share in Asaph's situation. And every Christian can be really encouraged by this psalm because, thankfully, Psalm 73 does not end in the middle of uh, verse, or at the end of verse 16, uh, 16. There is a very important word in verse 17. Asaph begins to find the solution when he starts to have the right perspective on the situation. And in verse, 16, verse 17, it tells us, till. This is how he felt, until. Verse 17, until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then he begins to see the whole situation from God's perspective, from the right perspective. When he enters into the very presence of God, comes into his sanctuary. He says, then I understood their final destiny. And then he begins to see that, yes, of course, things are not as they're supposed to be, but God has got it all under control. As he comes into God's presence and meets with God, he begins to realize that things are not quite as he had seen them. He begins to look beyond the present. And as he sees things from God's, from God's perspective, he realizes that the present is not all that there is. That God will punish the wicked. They won't get away with it forever. God has it all in hand. God is just and good. Then in verse 20, he sees that the problem of all evil injustice in the world will fade into oblivion when God judges the ungodly, the unrighteous, those who ignored or blasphemed his name, those who made fun of God and uh, <coughs> made fun of those who trusted in God. When all these people are judged justly by God and reap their rewards, the rewards of their ungodly lives, They'll be completely swept away, a bit like 
those vivid dreams we sometimes have and wake up in the morning and can't remember. We know we had a we had a strange dream, but we can't remember a thing about it. They will have gone, vanished, because God is just and God will judge. God is righteous. And so in verses 21 and 22, he realizes his folly. Indeed, uh, his sin in the way in which he was looking at it from the wrong perspective. In verse um, 21, he says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He realizes that he was wrong. He confesses his sin, but then he moves on because we have another yet. I don't think I noticed these yet so much until this time because in verse 23, he begins to realize the true situation seen from God's perspective. He realizes folly, he moves on. And it is important, isn't it, for us to realize when we've got it wrong, to realize when, well, when our thoughts have not been God's thoughts, maybe in all sorts of areas, to acknowledge our sin, but then to move on. God, it just disappears, a bit like uh, these ungodly people. Remember, God takes our sin and promises that he remembers it no more. We can move on, even if we've had wrong attitudes and wrong ideas. And so in these uh, final verses, in verses 23 to 28, we see the great rewards of seeing life from God's perspective, the incalculable joy of life lived in God's perspective. So what does it mean? Well, verse 23, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards will take me in to glory. We can know and enjoy God's constant presence, both now and uh, in the future. In the present, he's holding us, holding on to us, never letting go. Isn't that a great thought? God is there. He's holding on to us. He'll never let us go. And his guidance in the future. He'll walk with us day by day. You guide me with your counsel. If we're willing to listen to what he says, willing to obey him, then he won't let us take the wrong path. He's more concerned that we get it right even than we are. He'll guide us. And then we can know his presence into eternity. Verse 24, you guide me in your count, with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. The joy of leaving this world, living with God in his completely perfect, uncontaminated world for all eternity. What's not to look forward to in that? What's not to long for? Yes, our bodies will die. As he says in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God's strength, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God will always be with us now 
and through eternity. All of this world's pleasures, all of the stuff that we accumulate, that we trust in, will all pale into insignificance, won't it, in the light of that unimaginable wonder and glory that lies ahead for each one of us that is trusting in the Lord Jesus. And so that brings us to his final summing up in verses 27 and 28. Asaph has realized the truth. He's seeing the present from God's perspective. So he says, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. He's come back to that uh, realization that when he is there, in the very presence of God, in the sanctuary, in God's presence, that all is good. God is near to him. The sovereign Lord is his refuge. And he wants to tell other people about it. I like to think that at the end of this psalm, Asaph is back leading the praise and worship of God's people, that he's there again making a joyful sound with the musical instruments, the lyres, the harps and cymbals. Experience again, experiencing again the joy of his salvation as he sees things as God sees them. And I pray that each of us may know that same joy as we come to God this morning. And indeed, as we come to him day by day. But I wonder if some of us maybe aren't quite there yet this morning. Do you feel near to God? Have you made the sovereign Lord your refuge? Maybe you're not even sure that you are one of God's children, that you are part of his family. How can you experience the presence of God as Asaph did? Well, Michael Wilcox again says, for us, we can only get there by an encounter with God through Christ at Calvary. Jesus has opened the way. He took on himself all our wrongs, all the bad stuff we'd done. He was punished in our place. And so we can now come to God through Jesus, trusting in what he did on the cross. And we can be accepted into God's family. We can be part of that worshipping community that Asaph knew about and rejoiced in. We can come right into the presence of a holy God. You can ask God for forgiveness this morning. And God will come into your life and begin to change you. The Holy Spirit will live in you and you will, we will be making you, making us as he is, those of us that know and love him more and more like Jesus. If that's you and you would like to know more, then do talk to someone you've seen at the front or someone you came with, someone you know. Don't go away without 
finding out more how you can be part of God's family and know that joy and that peace. But maybe many of us this morning are trusting in God. We are part of God's family. But maybe some of us are filled with doubts or questions or have worries and fears and we do begin to doubt God's goodness. We get a bit confused. Life can be hard. Some of you may well be struggling. And if that's you, and indeed all of us really, I'd like to invite to just now come quietly in silence into the presence Deliberately, we're in God's presence. God is here. He's been with us all the time. But let's just pause and come quietly and silently into the presence of God who's here amongst us. And just pause and then I'll lead us in a short thought. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, the doubts and problems of earth, won't go away, but will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen.